Well, hello again. It's another edition of Something to Talk About. And she's still Vaughn. He's still Stuart. And we have uh, sad news. Today's Friday the 13th. And unfortunately, this is the very, very last Something to Talk About show. On Fridays. <laughs> Aha, gotcha. This is our last Friday show because starting next week, we're moving to Hump Day, Wednesdays, 11 a.m. right here at KVGI Media. So mark it on your calendar. Uh, if, if you've had us on Fridays, move us up a couple of days because we're going to start being on Wednesday every week at 11 o'clock, KVGI Radio, and then again on YouTube and all these multi-platforms that we, we are all over the world. But... Uh, we're kind of excited. We're going to be moving up to Wednesdays, and it'll make it a lot easier for KVGI Media. It'll make it easier for Vaughn and, and Stuart and everybody concerned. It'll be fun. Oh. Yep. That'll be fun. That'll be a fun day. Yep. We're going to be on hump day now. So, <laughs> well, fun day on hump day. Yeah. We, you know, and what we're going to continue to do uh, with the show is occasionally Vaughn and I are going to just be talking whatever is uh, comes off the top of our heads, uh, like like cats uh, or dogs, you know, whatever whatever Sorry. passes whatever Sorry passes across our screen. <laughs> excuse, but, excuse you know, or what we're going to do is we want to reach out to the community and get the community involved in in issues uh, that that are of interest to all of us. And Lord knows there's plenty to choose from. So what what we want to do uh, is to is to try and bring people in that are more knowledgeable than both of us on particular subjects, and that's exactly what we're doing this morning. Uh, because Vaughn said, you know, we we probably should talk a little bit about mental health. There's a certainly a lot of aspects uh, to talk about with mental health, and Vaughn, you reached out. To to uh, a connection in in Denton uh, at the uh, uh, Denton um, uh, MHMR uh, clinic, and uh, we want to welcome Lauren into the show. Uh, Lauren Titsworth is with the uh, Denton MHMR clinic. Yes, and and first the first question, of course, that I asked was, what does MHMR stand for? And, and you go ahead and, 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 and tell the audience, because we're, we're kind of trying to be politically correct these days, mm -hmm. uh, but the name is? So it, MHMR is kind of like an older terminology. Um, basically, we're kind of moving more towards a more positive language. So MH stands for mental health, and then the MR side focuses more on intellectual and developmental disabilities now. But we've kept the name thus far. Yeah, I mean, because then you got to change the the logo and the uh, and the the stationery and all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. But but we are living in a society right now where the the term mental health has taken on so many aspects. Uh, we've heard time and time again when there have been issues in schools and and theaters with active shooters and everything, they look back and they say, well, he was mentally uh, uh, unstable. 
and a why didn't he get get some help, he or she, whoever the, the, the shooter was. And there was always that mental health aspect that maybe was overlooked. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we certainly see what the pandemic has done to an awful lot of people. It's increased their anxiety and, and the tension and stress that they're going through. And also, how has this impacted what you and your organization are, are doing with, with mental health? So to kind of touch on your first point about the active shooter side is from research, we know that um, people that are living with mental health are actually more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators of violence. But at the same time, kind of moving to your second side of that, COVID has very quickly and very much changed how we give mental health services to the community. I mean, clearly we can't be face to face right now due to concerns of COVID. So we, as an organization, I didn't know, as a counseling community all around had to quickly transition to a telemental health perspective. We had to learn very quickly how to still connect with people and have that communication process, but at the same time, try our best to be safe. So, I mean, COVID, if you guys, you've probably seen the numbers. I mean, the CDC has said over and over again, there's increases in mental health, suicidality, substance use, I mean, across the board. I think one research study they did in June actually said 40% increase. So, I mean, that can definitely be something that's gonna have a lasting effect for a while as we move forward. And why, you know, being a professional in, in that industry, why do you think, I mean, there are some obvious reasons, I guess people are shut in, Mm -hmm. They're feeling lonely. They're not able to interact with other, you know, pe other people. Yeah. Um, so there are some obvious reasons, but then do you think that it's just people who already maybe had tendencies that just really surfaced during this time, just because everybody's anxiety is much higher depression and whatnot. I mean, what can you at all pinpoint why, you think that the numbers rose so high during this time? I mean, I know it's pretty obvious, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but there are a lot of people who are not affected by what's going on right now in, in the world. So why are some so greatly affected and others not? Is it, is, it a, is it a chemical thing? Is it a personality thing? I mean, when you see these people and treat these people and get to know these people that come to you, Mm -hmm. Are you able to identify what what triggers it? So I can't say there's one thing that I can pinpoint because everybody's experience is different. Everybody's situation at home is different. So it's kind of just an accumulation of you mentioned the isolation. The biggest thing with mental health treatment is being able to connect. So whether that's connecting to providers, whether that's connecting to peer support groups, that level of connection as quickly as we moved with COVID, I mean, people weren't prepared necessarily to continue those connections. And when we talk about addiction specifically, so often people say that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connecting to other people. And we've seen these rates increase probably because of that lack of connection. Support groups had to shut down for a while. They were moving virtual as best they could. But at the same time, people didn't have those same strong connections that they had pre-COVID. Right. So I think in my personal opinion, I think that's a big piece. Right. But like I said, there's so many 
other pieces to it that we may not necessarily know or see. But outside of everything, we see the numbers going up. We see people um, reporting more mental health symptoms. But at the same time, as COVID changes the landscape of mental health, we really need to be looking at um, preparing for more people to need treatment. Right. And the, the one thing, in, in my opinion, like, and I don't know this to be, you know, true, but um, we are talking more about mental health issues right now. It's almost like the pandemic kind of triggered the conversation. Mm -hmm. And mental health has always had this kind of stigma. You don't want to, you don't want to ever tell anybody you're in therapy. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to ever tell anybody you're seeing a counselor or a therapist because I don't know, it's like a sign of weakness or something. I don't know. But the good thing about it is that many people are now are becoming very aware of how, what a, what a big issue mental health, you know, illness is in our, yeah. in, our in our world. And um, and maybe the good thing that will come out of this is that people won't be so intimidated by talking about it mm -hmm. and people who possibly need help and who have been kind of just secretive about it and just keeping it all in will go and seek out help. Do you see that maybe to be true? That honestly is my hope. I mean, the thing about COVID is it really has given us a chance to review how we approach mental health, how we have conversations about it, the language that we use to discuss it. So as much as COVID isn't fun, I really hope that this really starts to open the opportunity for people to feel more comfortable discussing mental health. That's a that's the thing I'm a huge advocate for is having conversations and using like very supportive language. Lauren, right. I, I, I'm, I'm curious. COVID is, has forced a lot of people to spend a lot more time at home uh, and, and not getting out. That can lead to depression. Uh, be, because we are sequestered and all. Is depression a form of mental illness or mental health concern? So people can experience depressive symptoms, but not necessarily meet the clinical diagnosis for depression. So there's a few options when it comes to this range of depression and it comes to the clinical criteria. But like I said, people can still experience some of those symptoms, but still not meet the the time frame criteria to actually qualify for a diagnosis. And that can be for really any diagnosis per se. So depression, anxiety, things like that. Because, you know, I mean, I'm just seeing that, that because people are not getting out. Yeah. OK. Now we've all we all thought that uh, Zooming and everything and virtual uh, connection connecting was the greatest thing six, seven months ago, but yeah. we, we were still going to be doing it eight months later. And no. it's to the point where people are saying, I've had it with this. I'm not going to stay in the house anymore. I got to get out of here. And so it's, it's, you know, kind of rattled the cages a little bit. What do we as individuals, you know, how do we look at our friends and our family and, and, and try to recognize if there are any signs of depression, or you know, maybe maybe somebody is getting a little bit too depressed, and and maybe having a mental issue. Yeah. So some of the biggest signs to look out for are uh, changes in behavior, both quickly and over a period of time. 
So if we're speaking about depression specifically, people may lose interest in activities that they used to enjoy. They may withdraw more from other people. Uh, they may sleep more, changes in appetite, um, weight changes. So my biggest thing when people notice these symptoms, either in their friends or family members, I always encourage them, reach out, express like, hey, I've really seen like these changes in you. And it makes me a little concerned. But then also kind of turning around on that and being there to support them, helping them get connected to resources, mental health wise, if that's something that they're open to. Are, are you seeing that there's any kind of a spike in, in alcohol or, or, you know, drug use uh, during this time now? Specifically in Denton County, I can't speak on the numbers per se, but nationally, I mean, there's been multiple studies on different levels of um, age groups. I just read a study recently about elderly population that's seeing an, a rise in substance use, specifically with anti-anxiety medications. And I mean, just based on the CDC report that I mentioned earlier, more and more people are reporting substance use. I believe um, it was about 13% of the sample that they talked to had reported either recently starting using substances again or increased use during COVID. So would that include, <clears throat> pardon me, alcohol? Yes. So substance use includes alcohol. Yeah. I mean, just, just the numbers alone, like when total wines or whatever, you know, they, their alcohol sales are through the roof. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people were locked in and I, I guess figured let's just have a drink. I don't know. Yeah. But, but it's, it's also made well, coping so hard. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to leave your house to go to go get the alcohol and wine in either because you can just call up and they'll deliver it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is coping. For some people, substance use can become a coping skill. It's not a healthy coping skill per se, but it can become a way to cope. So that in turn can then turn into possible substance use uh, concerns. But... Mm -hmm. If, if we don't have those effective coping skills, then that can definitely lead us down the more unhealthy path. Right. Is it fair to uh, say that, that what we can do as individuals, certainly, is if there are people that are in uh, seclusion uh, and, and that are lonely, stay in touch with them. Pick up the phone and call them. Absolutely. Uh, or, or say, hey, listen, I'm going to send you a link and join me on Zoom <laughs> and let's have a conversation so we... So I can see that you're doing okay too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even do that myself with my own friends. I mean, even mental health professionals kind of have felt this level of isolation. I mean, everybody I would say has, I mean, COVID changed the world, but at the same time, yeah, just continue to reach out, continue to offer support, continue to be that non-judgmental ear that people need. Cause sometimes people just need to be heard. They need someone there that's supportive that will just listen to their experience and their story. But on the connection piece, yeah, just invite them to a Zoom chat. It's so easy to just send a link and then you have that face-to-face -face connection. Is it like real face-to-face? -face? No, but it's the safest option right now. And we got to work with what we have. It's a better alternative to nothing. Exactly. So let's, let's you know, kind of think about reality here there are a lot of people out there that just don't want to admit that they have a problem mm -hmm. and so there and there are probably i would i would venture to say thousands of <laughs> um how do you 
how do you promote your organization? How do you put yourself out there? How do you, how, cause you've got to put yourself in front of those people cause they're not going to put themselves in front of you. Mm-hmm. How do you find them? How do you, you know, because I just picture these people that are isolated, not admitting, not talking, say somebody sees signs and reaches out to them, but they're in denial. Mm-hmm. How do you get those people to want to get help? So of course I got into the mental health field hoping I can help everyone. And I learned very quickly that's that's not always gonna be the case, unfortunately. So what I do is I try my best to listen to people's experiences. Like I just mentioned a second ago, if people are willing to talk to me and willing to let me hear them out, then I absolutely wanna give them the floor so that we can do that. At the same time, there's situations like you mentioned where people may not be as open and they may never come into my office. So in those situations, I like to look at their family system. How can their, the system around them continue to encourage treatment? How can the system around them help connect them to the resources and let them know that they're available even if that maybe right now that's not something you wanna do? Continuing to express concern, continuing to point things out, but still being that non-judgmental uh, attitude and still approaching it from a place of wanting to create hope and help. But I mean, it can definitely be hard when, especially when someone maybe doesn't feel that they um, need mental health treatment at that time. And don't you think also, like how can we make the the conversation, uh, just generally speaking, you know, in the general public, not so taboo, not so, <laughs> we don't want, we don't want to hear about mental health issues. That's a scary thing. And mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about it. And I'm not going to admit that I know somebody who's seeing a therapist and yeah, you know, how do we like some people get it? Like, I know, I know, I know a couple people who actually don't have any real mental health issues, but they almost like a, it's almost like a, a, a well visit when you go, when you, you know, used to see a pediatrician, you'd have a well visit. You were not sick, but you would just go in and get checked. I know people who go on a regular basis just to kind of talk about their their life and their, their thing going th- themselves and whatever. Yeah. And it's just kind of a they find it to be kind of like a healthy, like massaging the brain kind of thing. You know, just exactly. Like so there are people like that who totally love it and have no problem with it. But how do we make the conversation? How do you promote yourselves as an organization as a positive place? I mean, you know what I mean? Do don't mm-hmm. you want to have to? Don't you want to kind of put out that reputation of Denton County MHMR is a positive place. I mean, you're dealing with negative issues, but it's a don't, but it's a positive place. Sorry, my computer's doing something. You're good. Do you understand kind of how do we, how do we make the subject more positive and not a scary topic? So this is kind of like a multi-layered uh, question. So just to kind of start it, uh, for so long, mental health has gotten that kind of bad rap. We talk about maybe the crazy person or the person that's suffering with mental health. But at the end of the day, there's people living with mental health. There are people that are thriving. And there's and, varying degrees of it, too. Yeah. But the thing is, we really have to change our own conversations, the way that we talk about it. When I was in school, they talked all the time about what we call person first language. So the disability isn't the person. The person is living with the disability. And 
if we, I saw a cartoon a long time ago. It's like if we treated uh, medical issues like we treat mental health issues. And there was a cartoon of a guy that had gotten his arm cut off in an accident. It was a cartoon, of course. Right. And, and they said, oh, just suck it up, get over it. But the thing is, mental health is health. So we as a community, we need to start shifting this conversation to focusing more on being accepting of it, talking about it, and kind of moving away from that taboo. Of course, it's going to take time. We have made progress, absolutely, but it's still going to continue to be an issue and something that we need to move forward in. Um, mental health, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're black, white, rich, poor. It does not care. But I mean, I've seen over and over again, communities, they're like, oh, that's not our problem. That We don't have that in our community. Well, no, you, you do. You just, you don't see it because people feel this sense of shame if they talk about it. But the thing is, we need to talk about it so we can help people, so we can get them connected with support, so that we can have those people around. That's you know, very over the, years, over the years, I think that the, there have been people that have had problems with alcohol or drugs. Uh, and very often they say is before an alcoholic or a, 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 a drug abuser can get help, they have to admit that they have a problem and then reach out and say, okay, I need help, and then seek, seek the help. Mm -hmm. in, in certain aspects, is this true for people that may, you know, do people really recognize that they have a mental health problem? Because obviously with drugs and alcohol, there is a physical aspect to, to their, their problem. But mental health, it's, it's all, all up in here. Do, do people sometimes put themselves in the same position or do you have to rely on somebody outside that says, you know, he's just, he or she is just not acting the way they, they should. And I think maybe they have a problem and talk to them first and say, why don't you seek some help? And here's a phone number, call Lauren and maybe she can help you. So there's not one right answer to this question. Yeah. So if someone is experiencing uh, mental health symptoms or experiencing substance use symptoms, um, it's important to talk to them about it for sure. But there's no one right way to go about it. You mentioned admitting that someone has a problem. That isn't necessarily always necessary for someone to seek treatment. Uh, sometimes people can, like friends or family can point out, like I mentioned earlier, kind of some of the signs they're seeing and express that concern. But if people, we, in school, we talk about theory of change. If in my theory of change with when it comes to counseling, if there's change in one part of the system, it can affect the rest of the system. So if we can start to look at how we can change that one part, then we can affect the whole system. Is it, is it foolproof? No. Is it possible? Absolutely. So just starting that conversation, being open, being empathetic, active listening, non-judgmental, I mean, all those things so that we can start to guide people towards hope, help, and support. So hope, help, and support. Mm -hmm. What is your goal with when you start seeing somebody as a, are they considered a patient? Uh, depends on the person they're working with. Uh, a lot of clinicians look at this kind of level of clientele differently. Uh, one of our 
our one of our departments kind of coined this phrase that I had heard for the first time. They call them prosumers, which is more of a positive language. Yeah. So I I see that as awesome because that's really changing the conversation internally of how we look at people that come to treatment. And are they, are y'all, it's outpatient, everybody, right? It's not. Yeah. So we're an outpatient mental health clinic. We're the local okay. mental health authority for Denton County. And and if, if a case is serious enough, then I would, uh, I guess you have to recommend that they go inpatient somewhere. Yeah. So if someone is a risk of harm to themselves or others, then we have a crisis team available 24 seven that can do an assessment to make a recommendation for treatment. But anytime we do one of those assessments, we focus on what we call least restrictive environment. So we're looking at their support system. We're looking at the people that they have behind them that may be able to play a role in this um, crisis. Uh, we do safety plans we, and we kind of look at what's most appropriate. So we don't take hospitalization lightly, okay. but if it is needed, it's, it can be an option. Is it, is it a, ever a goal, a realistic goal to say you're working with somebody, would, would, would the goal ever be to not have to see that person anymore? Or oh. is that something that you never, like is mental health, even though you're dealing with it better and you're functioning better and you're not feeling maybe the anxiety anymore or whatever, is it kind of like an alcoholic where you, even though you're not doing it anymore, you still are, you know, an alcoholic or like, will you always have the mental health under there? And so do you always want to continue working with that person just even though, even, even after they get better? Yeah. So we, especially when we're working with people, we are always following up. We're always checking in to see how they are because like you mentioned, mental health, it, it can change in severity. Uh, someone can start maybe uh, very higher mental health needs. And then as they do treatment and counseling and maybe medication management, it gets lower. So in some of those instances, we can look at like, we don't call them necessarily aftercare options, but in the therapy world, kind of reducing the number and frequency of times you're meeting with someone. But at the same time, for me as a clinician, like counselor specifically, I always think it's important to continue to follow up with people even after they leave your therapy room or your uh, organization. So then that way we can continue to reach out for them, remind them if something does come up or if the mental health symptoms return or become exacerbated, we're absolutely here and we're still there to support you. Okay, so the goal is though to get them to actually kind of graduate from your program. So, so mental health is varies for every single person. There's no graduation point per se. It's has the person learned effective coping skills? Have they learned effective problem solving skills? Do they have connections to support systems that can help carry them? Some people stay in mental health services forever and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Some people stay in counseling forever. And I think that's great. Yep. But, but the yep. thing is mental health, substance use, just like medical things are lifelong events and they can be right. just like diabetes. Mental health can be better managed maybe at one point in time, but later down the road, something may have changed and it can be completely different. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that from that medical mental health perspective and kind of compare it, it's a little easier to understand sometimes for people. You know, Lauren, you, you, one thing that that I can I can share with uh, with you and with the audience is uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran and uh, a lot of my fellow veterans and all uh, 
it was our generation that coined the term post-traumatic stress. And then they added the word disorder mm-hmm. to, to the end of it. But that's another form in my mind of kind of mental health, because, you know, once you have post-traumatic stress, you always have post-traumatic stress. I have a mild form of it. When, if my wife drops something on the floor in the kitchen, I react, yeah. I jump. Uh, and it's something that I will live with for the rest of my life. And so to your point, what you're saying is once you have something like that, it, is, it isn't something that you cure and then it goes away. You just have to deal with it, whether it's with medication or whether it's with, with active mental training. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you, are you also, again, I keep going back to the pandemic, uh-huh. but are you starting to see an increase in this basically a post-traumatic stress that people are going through because they're being sequestered and because they can't go freely? I mean, I I can't say per se if there's been an increase because I haven't personally done any sort of research in it, but I can say that just based on some people that I've worked with, they've definitely reported um, that the isolation piece of COVID has definitely affected their ability to reach out, has affected their ability to effectively manage some of their um, mental health symptoms. But at the same time, some, some people, their biggest coping skill is other people and staying connected. And the second that kind of pretty much got ripped away, people right. didn't always know how to cope with that. So that's what I would say to that part. You know, I, Vaughn and I very much appreciate this conversation that that you're sharing with us this morning. Is this something that you and your clinic offer perhaps as a, a program that you can go to other groups via uh, Zoom or whatever in order to do some instructional programming on the signs of mental health, uh, health uh, or mental illness, and what to look for, what to recognize, uh, are are those things available to the general public or to to church groups, social groups, whatever? So for me, outside of work, I I talk to groups all the time. I'm I'm studying to get my PhD in family therapy, so I'm constantly doing presentations to organizations, educating adolescents on things. So it's not necessarily something that I do for the organization. It's something that I do personally, but professionally. It's your sometimes. life. Yeah. So, I mean, it is. I, I want to be able to have this conversation with people to break down that stigma so that we can create a more supportive culture in our world so that we can, so that we can support people that need help. At the same time, um, MHMR specifically, we do offer um, what we call gatekeeper trainings. Um, right now, we're offering them mostly to community organizations. Um, we can maybe look forward in the future if there's any interest about offering them to the community. But offer, the, basically, the gatekeeper trainings kind of teach people what the risk factors are, the warning signs of possible mental health or suicidality, and then how to react in those situations, not as a clinician, but as a, as a community member, as a gatekeeper. So having that honest conversation, asking about risk, and then getting them connected with resources and how to do that. Well, for those that are watching and listening to the program, the information is right on the screen there. And, and if, you, if you have concerns and questions, uh, call Lauren. Uh, or go online to see what the programs are that they, that they offer. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's extremely important. And I just, I just, my eyes are always open. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I'm talking to to people and friends, uh, I think it's a again that that quotation of see something, say something. If yep. somebody is just not acting their normal self, you know, just don't just blow it off, you know, maybe look to see if there's something a little more inward that you need to draw out of them in order to help them feel better. I, I really find the, the, the role of, did you say gatekeeper? Yeah. I, I that's really great because what I like about what you, you, you said some things that are, are interesting, like you're looking at the whole system, um, looking at the family network, um, you know, bringing the community together, not only in an effort to get us to understand the issue, better understand the issue, but also um, be, be, become more comfortable talking about it. But you've gone even beyond that to getting your know, training the community yeah. <laughs> um, on how to uh, on how to identify those who might be in need and how to actually as a community member um, support that person like you said not clinically yeah but just as a as just another human being living on this planet all together um, how can we come together not only to to recognize but what what what's we can actually do, be effective and you're what you're saying is you're you're training community members you're giving them the skills necessary not not professionally or clinically like you said but just giving them skills as a you know um, as a as just another human being in how to identify and support these individuals and i think that's amazing um yeah that, it's that is i, I I hope that there are so many other organizations out there that do something like like what you just described. Yeah, I know that there's uh, organizations throughout our area that are offering kind of these mental health trainings. So in that way, our community can be better equipped to respond in a situation. I mean, I've heard stories time and time again where someone learned about maybe their loved one or friend or family member expressing thoughts of maybe killing themselves and the person just had no idea what to do. So that's kind of where we want to this training and the trainings that we offer in the community to step in and be like, okay, I, I hear you. Let's talk about it and let's get you connected to help. Is your organization part of a statewide or even a national uh, network uh, that, that, that work, work, uh, together sharing information and programs? So when it comes to being the local mental health authority, every county is connected to a certain local mental health authority. For Denton County, we have our own. Collin County has theirs, Tarrant and Dallas County as well. And then for some of the smaller counties, some of the larger counties might cover them. So um, we do work together um, when it comes to task force and different um, shared interests, especially with crisis. We're working right now on our zero suicide initiative. So that's something that we're definitely partnering with other local mental health authorities to kind of brainstorm and come together. I mean, we all have the same goal to keep the conversation going with mental health, break the stigma and taboo and offer that hope and services to people who need them. So what are your, how do you um, get your funding? How do you, you know, do you, do you that's grants? Is it through grants? Is it fundraising all the above? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, mental or Denton County, much more specifically, we are a nonprofit. So we are a 501c3. Um, 
we work some through um, grants. That's where a, a portion of our funding does come from. The program that I'm in charge of, we actually is a COVID-19 response grant that we just got. So a lot of our funding does come from applying for grants and being awarded through different federal and public private agencies. Okay. How about fundraisers? Uh, we, so we have fundraisers sometimes for sure. A lot of our fundraisers recently have been focused on our loss team, which are, is our local outreach to suicide survivors. Um, basically it's a team of mental health professionals and people with lived experience that go to scenes of suicides and offer hope and help and support and resources to the families. Um, COVID of course has kind of changed how we respond, but usually that um, recently our, our fundraising has kind of been going to that. We have an annual race for hope, which is a 5k that we have. We just had that a little bit ago. We did a virtual one. Um, we also have our music fest and art auction that we usually have in the spring. Uh, we had to cancel of course, cause of COVID, but those are two of our biggest ones. Then we'll have an upcoming um, yard sale soon to help kind of continue to build funding for that program specifically. That's been part of the problem too, is it's so many nonprofit organizations, you know, yeah. depend on, on golf outings, yep. uh, you know, fashion shows and things like that to really cover a lot of their expenses and their programs to, to reach their clients. Mm -hmm. And that's all just been knocked off the, the planet. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you have to turn to other other fundraising uh, uh, methods in order to, to continue to do that. So again, I will remind our audience that if what we're talking about is something that that is important to you, feel free to go onto that website and all. And if, if do you have a donate button on the on the website? We do. We have a donate button on the website for you sure. Know, Please, maybe maybe make it make a donation just to help them continue the work that they're doing uh, in Denton County. And if you live in any other county look up your mental health organizations that are, are in your county and maybe continue to support them also in Please, any way we that appreciate you can. It. Yeah. I, I would also like to get your opinion on medication. Okay. Um, I guess I don't like, what's your feeling on medication? Do you try, would you rather work with a, with a prosumer? What did you call them? Prosumer. Prosumer without medication, if 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 possible, or do you do you do you just believe in medication and what it can do in terms of just helping that person kind of move along? You know, I don't know. Do you and, know kind of what I'm asking? I do, I do. Okay. I want to I want to add a follow up to what Vaughn is saying too. Are do you have the ability to prescribe medications, yeah. or does that? do your clients then have to go to a a medical professional in order to get it? Yeah. Those are great questions. We'll start this by saying I am a counselor, so I can't speak specifically on like medical stuff, but I can say that um, speaking on Stuart's question, we have psychiatrists and advanced nurse practitioners within our organization that are able to prescribe mental health medications to somebody if that's something that they're interested in. At the same time, kind of going on Vaughn's question, um, it is not a requirement of our services to take psychiatric medications. One of my biggest things as a clinician and as a counselor is to meet people where they're at. If they are not open to medication, that's fine. Right. How can we work in therapy and in case management to help decrease some of these symptoms 
if not if not taking medication is something that you you choose and my my job is to help them work towards their goals okay if managing their symptoms without medication is their goal that's what we're going to work on but at the same time i feel it's important for people to still have honest conversations with doctors so then that way they are completely educated so they can make the best decisions for themselves okay um so really your organization sees individuals who come with maybe just minor anxiety all the way up to you said you, you're not saying suicidal you're saying suicide what did you suicide uh people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts okay so, 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 so i thought you said another word or suicidality that that's the word um, so you you have just up just a huge range i mean you could even maybe have um maybe even a woman who is experiencing postpartum depression i mean it sounds like you guys are just you know from minor to very serious yeah we're lucky to have multiple departments within our organization that can work with people at varying degrees of their mental health journey and at the same time, if someone is in crisis, we have an amazing crisis department. I'm a little biased because that's kind of where I've grown up at MHMRs in the crisis department, but an amazing crisis team that can meet with people, meet with their families and support them through any sort of crisis situation. And then of course our intellectual and developmental disabilities side, which is also um, available. So we, we have, we're very lucky to have all these services yeah. and offer them to people. We also have substance use counselors that are amazing. Uh, peer support groups. We have a first um, a, a program for people who are experiencing possibly maybe their first episode of psychosis. So there are so many aspects within our organization that we can help pinpoint people to, which is pretty great. Is there a certain age group that might where you see the numbers are a little higher than others or is it just across the board? Are you talking just mental health overall? Yes, yes. Um, in your in your organization, do you see more cases in adolescents? Do you see more ca cases in the elderly? Like, or is it just kind of across the board? I think it's pretty much just across the board. And like I like I've said kind of over and over again, it's different for every single person. Every single person's mental health journey is going to be different and look different. Well, I mean, we do serve children all the way up to the elderly, so we. We'll, we'll work with anybody that's open to, to talking to us and hearing right. us out. How, how right. large a staff do you have? I believe we have over 300 staff. I think wow. it's about 300, 350. I want to guess. And that's just within Denton County. Yeah. So that's within Denton County and both our mental health side of the house and our um, IDD side of the house, which is the um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Well, you know, I was just thinking of everything that you've been talking about. I, I was going to think, that's an awful lot to to strap on on so many people. But with 350 people, then you have access to a lot of professionals that can help people from even the, the most minor of entry level circumstances to those that are a little bit more advanced in the in the spectrum. Yeah, we definitely have an amazing team of people in all our departments that work together and we work in our, the best interest of the clients for sure. I have a question for you. I have a friend who actually speaks to a counselor once a week. Um, they have a standing appointment they schedule. Um, but there have been times where she's needed to talk to her counselor, um, you know, just kind of unexpectedly, you know, something has gone where she's really feeling the anxiety and, and she can't. 
because the counselor's booked or whatever. Yeah. And they've got the standing appointment. Then by the time the appointment comes around, she's feeling better and they still have their conversation. But, and I know that counselors just can't be 24 seven. I get that. But what do you do in that case when this person really needs, I mean, I guess I'm kind of thinking an answer to it would be some kind of hotline, but I don't know. But what do you do? How does that person get through that moment alone? So there, what yeah. would be your recommendation? For that so person? there's a couple options. I know speaking specifically on my counseling practice, um, one of my biggest goals is making sure that people have that social support network in place, or at least people who they can call and contact because you're right. Counselors are not going to be available 24 seven. You got your one week appointment. They try their best to answer phone calls if possible, but they're typically pretty booked, especially right now. Yeah. So developing that support system, developing that group of people they can turn to, but at the same time, having access to hotlines that people can call. I know there's a COVID hotline. I don't know the number offhand, but if, especially if someone's needing the support, there's always the suicide prevention lifeline as well. That's 1-800-273-8255. And that's available 24 seven as well. Um, should, we, should we repeat that and put it on the screen, Stuart? Absolutely. That yeah, why don't you great. say that number one more time? So yeah, the, maybe Mark will get it. Okay, cool. It is the suicide prevention lifeline. It is 1-800-273-8255. And that again is just Denton County. No, no. So that's the national lifeline number. Well, Denton County national lifeline. also has our own um, crisis hotline as well, which we can give that number as well. It's a uh, 1-800-762-0157. So anybody experiencing a mental health crisis is, or just needing some extra support is always more than welcome to call that number as well. So that's two numbers that definitely can provide support outside of right, the times. The, the first number that you gave, you said was a national hotline. Yes. So if somebody calls that national hotline and all do, do they then hook that person up with their local County? You know, if somebody was to call the national hotline and they're from Denton County, they would get to you. If they were calling from Denver, they would be, they would be pointed in that direction. So the national hotline is kind of a, a separate entity from us. They of course offer resources and support to people regardless of where they live. And I hope they also then give them resources in the local community local. as well. Yeah. yeah. But our, our hotline is I'm not sure if Mark got all those. We'll put them on the screen here, hopefully at the end. Sounds good. We're, it's always good info yeah. to have. We'll try and get read, read the read, give those those numbers once again. Absolutely. So the but, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is going to be 1-800-273-8255. And if you're experiencing um, any sort of crisis in uh, Denton County, you can call our 24-7 hotline as well at 1-800-762-0157. Well, the, the program is 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 recorded, so it will be re replayed, and people can go to this this program via YouTube and uh, Facebook and all, so they can go back and find Perfect. that information, or just contact you uh, directly and uh, and get that information. Yeah, and I definitely encourage people to put that number in their phones, both numbers as well, if that's if you live in Denton County or know people in Denton County, because when those crisis situations come up, sometimes they're very unexpected. So having that number that you can give out to people and help support them and getting connected with those numbers is a vital piece of the puzzle. 
you know, and again, because of what COVID-19 is doing to all of us mentally, uh, it's a good idea to, to, as I said at the beginning of the show, stick, stay in touch with people. Yes. Call them. How you doing? Uh, get on a Zoom. Even if you're you're having dinner, say, how, how about I get you on Zoom and you put your plate in front of you and I'll put mine in front of you. We'll, we'll have dinner together. Yeah, I've had a sushi uh, date before. It was pretty fun. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah Getting a creative. Great, great idea. Great idea. Well, I just am very thankful for people like you well, and you. organizations like yours because you know, I, I just, I know that mental health is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's really out there. I mean, honestly, I can probably say that I know a half a dozen people right now who are experiencing, you know, mostly anxiety, mm -hmm. um, just, yeah. just the, just the anxiety that's kind of coming from what's going on in, in today's times. Um, but I have other friends who are just dealing with, sometimes life's punches and right. you know a divorce or whatever and they're struggling mm -hmm. and um so i just i just i think this is such a an important thing to put out there and i again am just the fact that you are not only just putting it out there but that you're trying to even go that extra step and train the community on how to recognize and support these individuals is amazing to me. I applaud your efforts. <laughs> well, <Right>. thank you. <laughs> Lauren, yeah, th on behalf of us and also our audience that's, that, that, that's watching, thank you for taking the time to, to share what you do and, and, and make us a little more aware of, of mental health concerns and, and these issues that, that we have to, we have to live with. Uh, That'll do it for another edition of Something to Talk About. Uh, again, want to just remind all of you, starting next week, we will be joining you on Wednesdays at 11 o'clock, not on Fridays anymore. So I hope you will see you next Wednesday. Uh, and again, thank you to Lauren. Thank you to Vaughn. Uh, and thanks to all of you for, for spending the time with us. Go out and make it a great day. And thanks for watching Something to thank Talk About. Thank you so much, Lauren. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank Y'all have a bye great bye. day. Stay positive. You too. <laughs>